So now we turn to Colossians, and Janet is kindly going to read page 1183, chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old person with its practices, and you have put on the new person, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, bar barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. May God bless his word to us tonight. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray with the psalmist 
Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a slightly sobering observation that we, though we know from Scripture that God's heart is to free humanity from the bondage of sin, there are few things with more potential to enslave us than religion. Religion without Christ is not just a benign distraction. It has the potential to seriously blind and bind. Occasionally over the years, I've had the somewhat salutary privilege of offering to support people recovering from a life in a religious cult. And the level of trauma that often needs to be worked through can be staggering. For eight years, I worked with the Baptist Union and had a secretary who she and her husband uh, had been involved in the Exclusive Brethren in Aberdeenshire. And over these eight years, I got to know her and her husband extremely well. And occasionally, she would tell stories. And I could see, many years on, the hurts, the bruises, the fears, the trauma still of what that was like. Tonight's passage brings us very much to the heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let me remind you of the background. Paul, it seems, wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome, five years or so after the church at Colossae had been planted. And under house arrest, it seems that Paul, the apostle, was able to receive visitors to his lodgings, and one of them was Epaphras, who was the church planter at Colossae. And Epaphras brought news to Paul in prison, much of which was encouraging, as we've heard in the response that he gives. But there was one very disquieting piece of news, and that, that is that some of the believers in this new church were being sucked into a strange amalgam of beliefs that were doing anything to help them. In fact, as I've illustrated already, we're enslaving them. And it is here, now in this part of the letter, that Paul comes to tackle this issue head on. So if you look at the first verse that Janet read a few moments ago, if you have your Bible open, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath. And then look on to verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. 
Now, no one is quite sure where this teaching came from, or indeed what the overall shape of it was. It sounds very Jewish. All this concern about food that you're not meant to eat and religious days that you're meant to keep. And yet it doesn't sound like straightforward Judaism. It sounds quite different to those Judaizers who were plaguing, for example, the church in Galatia. And our best guess, and there's great scholarly debate about this, is that this was a set of beliefs where Judaism had somehow been fused with local myths, uh, local philosophies, a sort of Esperanto religion, as one scholar calls it, where things like the worship of angels and extreme spiritual disciplines become a great big deal as to whether you're in or you're out of this grouping. But whatever it is in detail, it was clearly robbing these young believers of any sense of joy and freedom. It was a form of religion, and we've seen it in cults, that filled them with fear. They were petrified if they stepped over a line that someone was defining, and they would therefore be condemned. And it was indeed enslaving rather than liberating. But more, it seems, is going on here. For Paul, this particular pastoral problem that he chooses to write about from prison, for him becomes illustrative of a much more widespread phenomenon Namely, that whenever a culture, whenever a worldview, and it's worldviews that are very much the theme of this series, seeks to build a moral framework without reference to Jesus Christ, it will inevitably become deeply oppressive. So notice a phrase that Paul uses twice in chapter 2. If you look back to verse 8, that was read by Angus last week, and then you look on to verse 20, something the translators struggle to express, and it may come out differently in the version you have, but here in the Pew Bible it is translated, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, which is a slight interpretation of the actual words, but is what the translators think it is saying. And what Paul seems to be referring to is that there is no culture, there is no place, there is no idea, there is no worldview which is spiritually neutral. Elemental spirits, deities, gods, preside over people and places, over movements and philosophies. And if Paul lived in our day, he would be quite clear that things like capitalism and nationalism and communism and consumerism and so many of the other isms that define our present worldview, as well as religion without Christ, are never spiritually neutral things. And this is a very important point that I want to make. That in this series about worldviews, trying to find a big-picture perspective on our culture and its values, 
The reason this is so important is not just a laudable quest to find a truthful perspective on reality, but because wrong worldviews have an insidious power to enslave humanity. And human history will testify to that. A few weeks ago, I read an essay by the American ethicist who David Moffat quoted at the beginning of his sermon three weeks ago called Stanley Haravas. And it was an essay that attracted me on the theme of self-delusion. And in this essay, he tells a very sobering story. It is about a man called Albert Spears who became the second most powerful man in Nazi Germany. Albert Spears was a brilliant architect and an even more brilliant organiser. And Hitler made him his Minister of Munitions. And it is said that the brilliance of Spears prolonged the last world war by at least two years. Such was his brilliant organisation ability within Germany. Unlike many of Hitler's cronies, he had no time for politics. He had no time for personal ambition. He heard about the death camps, but immediately switched off and was warned never to go anywhere near any of them and blanked it from his, his mind. He just wanted a new, cultured, beautiful, national Germany. And Haravas, reviewing his autobiography, points out his undoing. He was deeply deluded to think that he could remain some apolitical architect. He was naive at best to think that behind nationalism in Germany were no darker forces. Spears became complicit. He became blinded by, enslaved by, spiritual darkness and evil. He was given 20 years in prison at the Nuremberg trials. And Haravas ends this rather dark and sobering and perhaps extreme essay by saying, only a truthful story can set us free. Only a truthful story can set us free. So this theme that we're developing of worldviews is deeply important, not just in a quest for truth, but in a quest for freedom. Now central to this passage is one great, simple, and hugely important affirmation. And it is found in verse 17 of chapter 2. Speaking of religious rules and regulations, he says, and this seems to give evidence that this was very much a Jewish thing, he's not condemning it outright, he says these are shadows of things that are come. And then these great words, the reality, however, is found in Christ. And then in verse 19, referring to this group of people who were causing such havoc, puffed up, he says, with idle notions, he says, look at verse 19. What is his analysis? Very simple. They have lost connection with the head. 
A religion of rules can never free us from our deepest human problem, our sin. Ideas alone can never free us. Self-discipline alone can never free us. Self-help plans can never free us. Only the person of Jesus Christ can. And he alone is the one who can reshape our worldview to a point where we can begin to taste freedom. Keeping special days, eating kosher food, having wonderful spiritual experiences, participating in a fascination with angels, observing certain taboos, are at best, says Paul, just shadows of what is the real thing. And the real thing is Christ. These words remind me, and I'm sure they do for you, those words of Paul to Timothy, and they're words that often haunt me, where he talks about those who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And I have to ask at times how much of our church life is like that. Form of godliness, but it lacks real power. And I often reflect on this story that we read earlier from Luke 13. Here was a synagogue where presumably godly and sincere worship took place every Sabbath. And every Sabbath, we presume, in shuffled a woman, frail and in pain, depressed, bent over, crippled by a spirit, we are told, for 18 long years. And every Sabbath, no doubt, she was warmly welcomed to the synagogue. Every Sabbath, she joined the women in the gallery. Every Sabbath, she recited her prayers. Every Sabbath, she stayed for coffee afterwards, or whatever they did. And then one day, Jesus attends worship. And he immediately spots her. He sees her pain, he sees her distress, and he has compassion on her. He calls her forward, and he said the words that we read, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And Luke says he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened her back, and she started praising God. Incredibly, the religious leaders object and argue. Religion without Christ is not only impotent, but illustrating my point, it actually brings opposition to freedom. The reality is Christ. John's Gospel says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So why can Christ, and only Christ, set us free? Well, this has been eloquently spelt out by Paul in all that we have read thus far in Colossians 1 and 2. Only Christ can set us free because only Jesus of Nazareth has the fullness of God within him. That great theme that we looked at with Fiona some weeks ago. Only Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. Only Jesus Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing by them in the cross. Chapter 2 and verse 15. So look what Paul goes on to say about this religious 
fog that somehow is enveloping this young church. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You can just see the leaders, can't you? Calling people out and telling them off. These rules, says Paul, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom. This is the, this is the self-delusion of it. This is the danger of it. They have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But look what it says. They lack any value in restraining self-indulgence. They have no moral transforming power. None of them can free us from our addictions. None of these rules can release us from destructive habits. Only Jesus Christ can. So how can we taste this freedom? How can we reshape a worldview that liberates rather than dehumanizes? Well, Paul tells us very clearly and here we come to the end of, of Colossians 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3. So look at this with me briefly. First, writes Paul, turn to this new reality. Turn to Jesus Christ. It starts not with a false humility, referred to in verse 18, but a true humility. A humility that admits that sin has defeated us and binds us. A humility that kneels at the foot of the cross with empty hands and is willing to trust Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us to release us. It begins, as we read last week, with Angus, chapter 2, verse 6. Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him allowing Christ to welcome us and enfold us. And in the beautiful words of chapter 3, verse 3, our lives are therefore now hidden with Christ in God. What a beautiful phrase. It involves us going back to chapter 1 and verse 12 and allowing Christ to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into, the, into us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And we are to share this reality with the world. Kenneth Cragg, a great Christian Islamic scholar and Christian mission writer, wrote these words. The words of Jesus, go into all the world, mean more than becoming a travel agency. It means going into the heart of cultures and into the depths of creeds and codes and into the width of the world with this good news. We need to turn to Christ. And secondly, Paul says, we are to remember this new reality in our daily living and discipleship. Remember who we are in union with Christ. And once we have trusted Christ, says Paul, two things become true. First, if you look back to chapter 2 and verse 20, we have died with Christ. Since you died with Christ. 
And second, chapter 3, verse 1, repeating it in a different way, since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, by virtue of our life in union with Christ by faith, we share what he has achieved. Just as he defeated the principalities and the powers and put them under his feet, so as we live by faith in him, we die to the powers that once dominated us. The old regime is now a thing of the past. One scholar translates chapter 2 and verse 20, you died with Christ out from under the elements of this world. You died with Christ out from under the elements of this world. Why rather we have a new Lord, a new boss, who is risen and ascended, who is seated at the place of authority at God's right hand, and who will one day appear, and again, by virtue of our life in Christ, we are there with him, since you have died with him, and since you have been raised with him. Imagine for a moment a respected business in this part of Fife. And it is uh, successful, it appears, in the St Andrews magazine as a feature, as an advert. It wins local business awards. But under the facade of this successful local business is a managing director who is not a nice character. He generates a fear He's a man who is mean and controlling. All his employees feel intimidated and his business decisions are secretly not respected. And that is us. In an unredeemed world, without Christ. We may appear successful, but under the facade we are weary, we are bound with fears and doubts. Running our own business is a disaster. But then one day you turn up at work and you hear news that a new managing director has been appointed and the old one dismissed. And immediately the culture in that business changes. People are allowed to wear their views. The new boss takes time to listen to his employees. Good business decisions begin corporately to be made. And we have a new boss. We have a new managing director. We have a new Lord. And his name is Jesus. But imagine an employee who just does not believe that this change is for real. She still turns up at work with a knot in her stomach every morning. She still keeps her head down at her desk for fear of what the boss will say. She lives as if no new boss has come. And Paul is saying, do not be like that employee. Remember who you are in Christ. You died to the old management. And you now live with a new boss, the liberator and Lord of all the earth. So, he says, chapter 3, verse 1, set your hearts on things above. And repeating that with an important change in verse 3, set your minds on things above. That once we have trusted Christ, we belong to a new age, the age to come that has broken into the present. We live in this new kingdom, and so we are to live in it and focus on it and rejoice 
because of it. And one day, he says, when Christ appears, that when he appears, we too will appear in the reality of who we are, in the change that he's brought. We are to turn to Christ. And we are to remember who we are in Christ. And thirdly, we are to live radically in accordance to this new reality. And so we come to verses 5 to 11 of chapter 3. And notice the strong language that Paul now uses. We have died with Christ to the old regime. We have, as it were, buried the old management, the old way of living, the old attitudes and values. But please, says Paul, do not begin to exhume what you have buried. Put to death, therefore, keep dead whatever belongs to your earthly existence, your existence without Christ, to your sinful past. And at this point, he names two vivid lists of pagan vices, probably vices that were often quoted by pagan moralists. The first relating to sexual sin, if you look at verse 5 down to verse 7, the second relating to sins of speech, because of which, says Paul, God's judgment, his wrath, is coming. To underline the point, he uses the language of baptism, it seems. A stripping off of old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. Chapter 3, verse 9. You have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self. Here is baptism powerfully symbolizing dying with Christ and rising with Christ. And here is a candidate uh, almost dramatizing that, taking off wet clothes and putting on a new set of clothes, symbolizing this new life in Jesus Christ. And this, says Paul, is the way to taste freedom. Many are bound because they have never turned to Christ. And how well we know that at work and in our communities. Some of us who have turned to Christ are still struggling because we've never really taken hold of the radical teaching that is here. To remember what Christ has done, to believe it, to set our minds and our hearts and our new life in Christ and therefore logically to make the radical break from the past. And notice as we end two beautiful outcomes of this new freedom in Christ. First, the image of God found in all humans that has been so badly distorted by sin that we've been thinking about on a Sunday morning will be restored and will be renewed. Look at the beautiful words of verse 10. Putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the Creator. Here is Christ, the perfect man, who, chapter 1, verse 15, alone is the very image of God. And he sets us free by slowly, by his spirit, making us like him, restoring the image that he alone uniquely bears. 
And second, as Christ becomes this reality who sets us free, it will lead to a deep, joyful unity of a new humanity in Christ. We will not be divided by cultural or social or religious do's and don'ts. We will be united by the one reality that counts, which is Christ. And so these lovely words with which we end, therefore there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, all, yeah, Christ is all and is in all. We're going to take a few moments to worship. I find this passage stirring. What is it that renews us and frees us and gives us the ability to begin to picture a new worldview? It is never religion, per se. It is never about outward practices. It is certainly not about rules and regulations and human expectations or human traditions. It is not our spiritual dis disciplines. It is Christ. Christ who has cancelled the legal requirements through the death on the cross. It is Christ who is risen and, has the, and gives us the power to live this new life. It is Christ who has ascended, who invites us to share his authority over all that pulls us down. It is Christ who is coming again, who when he appears, we will be with him and we amazingly will be like him. Christ alone has the power to set us free. And he is here tonight, as surely as he walked in that synagogue, to set crippled people free.